Come on in. You can grab your seat. Boy, um, I think I think we got a sliver this morning of what heaven's going to be like. Man. I tell people, you know, when there are those moments where we just sense the heaviness of God's presence in a place, there really is no better place to be. I mean, like, like legit, like, in that moment, you couldn't entice me with anything in the world to get me away from singing God's praises, man. <laughs> Nothing. And um, I think sometimes we think of heaven, and we talk about it's worshiping the Lord, and people are like, I hate church, it's going to be boring, I don't want to go to heaven, right? Uh, I've heard people say that, kids are like that, like, like an eternal worship service, you know, just kind of like, like, really? And um, I, I don't think we get it. Because that, that sliver we just tasted like of for eternity in God's presence in the new heaven and the new earth. I mean, I look forward to going to heaven and seeing loved ones and people, and I have all these questions for God. But that's, let's be real. That's, that's not what excites me the most, man. I get to be with God. Man, singing his praises. So I'm just uh, overjoyed, overjoyed <sighs> to be here and to open God's word. Um, again, I just, we're so grateful for you guys honoring us uh, the way you've done this morning. It means a lot. And honestly, I'm just excited to open the word and preach. And so um, I was real transparent with our worship team before we started. I said, you know, sometimes we come to, to church service because it's a routine. And sometimes we come for a real reason. And I said, honestly, I showed up today, and it felt like a routine to me. Just kind of felt like I mean, I'm supposed to be here, right? I can't not be here. Um, and yet, uh, I said, but you know what? A lot of times when this happens, and this happens, you know, usually by the third or fourth song, God's broken me down pretty good. <laughs> and today, I think it was from the call to worship. Right? He broke me down pretty good. And so, uh, man, if, if that's where you're at and God hasn't broken through yet, I pray he does so as we open the word. I want to pray. And we're going to dive into our text for today. Father in heaven, I just thank you that you've got time for us. Billions of people on this earth. Hundreds of millions calling on you at any given time. And yet you've got the galaxy to keep in orbit. You, you, you've, got, you've got the the depths of the sea that no eye has ever seen to care for. God, there are animals in jungles that are fed from your hand. Lord, you have seasons to bring about, literally. And if that weren't enough, you are in your throne room with all the angelic beings praising you. And yet you would choose to say, I'm going to be at 3105 North Oak Park to meet my people. God, wow. Thank you for meeting us. Lord, we come today uh, with many burdens, God. We come broken down. Some of us, our bodies are failing. Some of us, our minds are failing. 
emotionally we're spent. We just say, God, meet us. God, for those who need healing today, meet them in this place, God. For those who have fibromyalgia, who are fighting through right now, give them strength. Lord, we lift up our little Ethan, God, as he battles leukemia cancer. We pray for your healing on his body. For our sister Kate, who has vertigo, God, deliver her of this illness. For our sister Nina, Lord, whose, whose kidneys need to work, God, would you allow those things to work and provide for her. God, for the countless other requests and needs here, Lord, meet us, God. But Lord, we know that we're just sojourners. We have a citizenship in another kingdom. So Lord, may we set our eyes upon that place, heaven, even as we walk here, sometimes with a limp. May our hope be set on you. And now, Lord, I just pray that you'd speak through me, God, to meet us all, each individually. You, God, you, you do this miracle every week. Someone says, I felt like you were talking to me, and Lord, I don't know what they're going through, but you did. So I ask you to do it again. And Lord, as we say every week, I pray that these ears of ours will be able to hear and these eyes will be able to see and that my lips will be able to speak your word. Put me out of the way, God, and put yourself in front of me. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ah, well, it's good. It's good to be here with you all this morning. We're going to be talking about the magnetic fear of the Lord. That'll make sense as I get about halfway through my sermon. I like to be on Instagram, I like to get on Twitter, but in particular on Instagram, there's certain people I enjoy following because of the kind of snapshots they give you. And in particular, there's a guy named Juan Sharks and his wife, Ocean Ramses, who are just amazing to follow because they have an addiction with sharks. They love to plummet the depths of the seas with their waterproof cameras to get the most crazy shots of all kinds of sharks. They have the most close encounters with tiger sharks, great white sharks, and all sorts. Sometimes an occasional whale will meet them. And they just, they they put all this on Instagram. And sometimes they'll have a shot where they're literally touching a shark at its nose or holding on to its fin as it's swimming. I'm just like, they got videos. I'm like, what are you thinking? People are like, this is crazy, you know. And they have this passion for sharks. In fact, they created a documentary called Saving Jaws. And so what they want to get out is that sharks, yes, intimidating, are actually quite beautiful creatures. In fact, one of the things that they constantly say is that people think of sharks in the wrong way. They say, yes, they are powerful creatures. And no, you don't get in the water haphazardly with a shark. So they said, you've got to have a kind of reverence about you when you get in the water, knowing the power of this creature that you're with. But they say at the same time, they feel drawn to this creature because they want to see its beauty. And so what they do is they tell us, when you get in the water, you've got to know what you're doing. In fact, one time recently, he jumped in the water too quickly, and a shark began to swim to him aggressively. And they teach, us, <clears throat> they teach you various tactics for pushing away a shark. It's using your fin. It's using a hand, a stiff arm. And he said, you know, I intimidated the shark because I jumped in too quickly, and I realized it was not the shark's fault, but it was more mine. 
And that was a lesson then for revering sharks. When I hear them talk about their relationship with sharks, I can't help but think about our relationship with God. Where God is our infinite God, an infinite being, needs to be feared when we come to him. There, there's got to be a real sense that we're in, when we're in the water with God, so to speak, we've got to understand his power, his might, and how we don't just come in, in haphazardly. While at the same time, the more we come to know God, we see his power in a way that causes fear, but is also so attractive. Where you say, I want to be with him, although I fear him. That's an important aspect of knowing God. I think sometimes in our day, we emphasize rightly God's love, God's mercy, and God's grace. If it weren't for those things, where would we be? But we're wrong to emphasize those things at the expense of his holiness, his justice, and his righteous indignation. God is to be greatly feared and at the same time greatly desired. We see today in our passage a demonstration of these aspects of God's qualities. We, we see how God is the kind of God who causes us to realize, man, God, I, I don't know if I could come to your presence because of your might. And at the same time, God, I long for your presence and I long for your might. We find this in the book of 2 Samuel. And we're going to be in chapter 6. It's page 258 in the chair Bible in front of you. Family, I, I want us who call the brook our home to be the people who greatly fear God and also greatly desire Him. You hear me? To, to have a, a, an awe of God and a longing for God to not come haphazardly into his presence as if he doesn't deserve fear and honor, but at the same time coming into his presence with fear and honor. I want that to be what typifies us. Now, if you have the passage, would you please stand to your feet if you're able as I read from 2 Samuel chapter 6. I'll be reading from verse 1 through verse 15. The Bible is God's word, family. As we read, God speaks. So let's have ears to hear what he's got to tell us. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart. Can you say a new cart? And brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah, can you say Uzzah? Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart. With the ark of God and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets 
and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen, can you say oxen? For the oxen stumbled. Verse 7. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went up and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with what? Rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. This is God's word. You may be seated. We have been processing and walking through the life of this man named David who first came on the scene in our story as a young man, likely a young teen. God had set David apart, saying, David, you will one day be the king of the nation of Israel. Samuel the prophet anoints David to be the king. And the next chapter after that story, the story of David and Goliath takes part. David slays the giant. Goliath dies. David begins to build a reputation for himself as one who has killed tens of thousands of soldiers of the opposing armies. David had been living his life with this promise over him that he would become the king of Israel. But there was one problem with this. The problem was that there was already a king in Israel, a man by the name of Saul. And Saul had a son who was also a man who was very valiant, this guy named Jonathan, who happened to be David's best friend. Saul and his son Jonathan, the heir to his throne, were there before David. And yet David had the promise of becoming the king. Through a series of events in David's life, he had the opportunity to kill Saul, which would give him a quick ascendancy to the throne, but David withheld that because he believed it's not what God wanted him to do. As the book of 1 Samuel ends, Saul and his son Jonathan die on a battlefield. They die at the hands of their enemies, the Philistines. And as the book of 2 Samuel begins, David is there and he mourns their death. Yes, Saul was his enemy, Saul was also his father-in-law. Saul was also the king. Saul was a man that David respected based on his position, even if he didn't respect the man's decisions. So David grieved Saul's death, but he even grieved his friend Jonathan's death. His best friend had just died. So David, after he grieves, though, now 
has a clear path to the throne. He goes to the southern part of the kingdom of Israel to a land called Judah, and the people of Judah make him their king. All these years, likely some 10 years or more, David had waited for this moment. But the northern kingdom, another person tried to become the king. Long story short, that person is removed. David is anointed as king of both Israel and Judah. He finally gets the fulfillment of the promises God had given him. Well, naturally, the first thing he wants to do is set up a capital city. He goes to a place that was uh, owned by a people called the Jebusites. He fights, takes that city, and renames it Jerusalem. David in 2 Samuel chapter 5 now is establishing his kingdom. The Philistines keep testing, trying to fight against him. And twice we're told in chapter 5 that David inquired of God, God, should I go fight back? The first time God's like, yes, go and fight them. David does it. He gets victory. The second time God, David says, God, should I, should I fight them? And God's like, no, 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 don't go that way. But go sneak around them. And when you hear a certain sound in the trees, then you know it's time to attack. And then it says David obeyed. He does this. He defeats his enemies. People realize David is one who hears from God. He's not just our king, but he's also a spiritual leader in our life. So what David then says, all right, Jerusalem's our capital city. Let me bring something called the Ark of the Covenant into the city, the city of David, to establish, establish it as the place of worship in our kingdom. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is a unique piece of furniture. You might be familiar with it from Indiana Jones' little exploits. Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. It is this Ark that, that Indiana Jones was looking for. It's the Ark of the Covenant, something that was made during the time of Moses. God had given instruction to this profound and, and gifted artist named Bezalel to build and craft this Ark. It was like a box basically of acacia wood. And the box was overlaid with the finest gold. It was about four feet long and two feet wide and two and a half feet deep. It wasn't huge, but the ark represented something important. On the ark were two angelic beings crafted out of gold called cherubim with their, e their the wings spread over the ark, each of them on opposite sides. And at the center, there was this golden slab called the mercy seat. And what God says is, this ark will represent my presence. Wherever this ark is, I will show myself to be there as well. The people of Israel were instructed to carry this ark on golden poles and, and to walk about into different camps. And we see that during the times of Moses, this ark is what God used to lead his people. He would direct those carrying the ark, and those would, the rest of the people would follow. We see in Numbers 10 that the ark would go before them in battle as a symbol of God's presence, and God would defeat their enemies. We see that God would say, hey, I am here. But we also see that God's people began to see the ark more as a religious trinket, they began to see it more superstitiously. So they go to fight and say, hey, let's bring the ark because we need some help here. As opposed to trusting God in the midst of a battle. And in 1 Samuel, they do this very thing. They take the ark, like, hey, we're going to go fight. Let's get the ark. Let's bring it forward. And you know what happens to Israel? They get defeated. And you know what happens to the ark? It gets captured. 
Ark of the Covenant eventually is returned on a cart driven by two cows because the people who had it previously were being killed and struck dead from having it. This is, this is the power of God revealed in this ark. So now we come to 2 Samuel 6. David's like, this ark needs to be in Jerusalem, but we realize this is an important moment. This is an important symbol of God's presence and blessing over the kingdom. So we see here the description of the ark in chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. It says that God sits enthroned on the cherubim over those angels. God makes himself known there. And it says they carry this ark on this new cart, and people followed. In verse 5, we see that they celebrated, thinking like, finally, we have an established king and a capital city, and now a place for worship where God's people are going to come together. And they're just dancing. They are celebrating. They're thrilled. But then in verse 6, something goes wrong. We read here that when they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God, took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Clearly something goes wrong here. It's important for us to then find out what it is. You see, Uzzah is there, with the ark, and one of the ox that's carrying the ark, it trips. And I'm like super sympathetic here. What's this guy supposed to do? Surely we cannot let the ark of the covenant fall to the ground. So Uzzah sticks out his hand to stop it. And is struck dead at the moment. And I'm reading this like, God, why'd you do that for? Why, why would God strike him down. Well, as we take a closer look in this passage, we learn some things about God's holiness that you and I need to really understand. There's something about fearing God that's here that's important for us to wrap our minds around. Because the people of Israel made four enormous mistakes in this story, and I've already mentioned all four of them, but you haven't seen them because a lot of times we just don't notice them. Well, the first one is the most obvious one. He touched the ark. Where you kind of like, well, then how is he supposed to transport if you can't touch the thing? We'll get to that in a moment. We see in Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, God gives the command to his people, saying that they must not touch the holy things lest they die. And what could be more holy than the very place God said, I'm going to be present? So Uzzah makes his mistake, touches the ark. But again, I'm kind of like, okay, sure, he made the mistake. But God, really, like, what's the alternative to let the ark fall to the ground? Well, then, as we look closer, we realize, well, actually, Uzzah was in this situation because of other mistakes that were made. Other ways God was not being revered. The first thing is Uzzah's family background. We see that his father's name is Abinadab. And as we study the genealogy, which we don't have time to do right now, we see that Uzzah is not from a tribe called the Levites. You see, God had designated the people of Levi to be the ones who took the priestly duties and were the ones who carried the ark. In fact, Deuteronomy 10.18 says, At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark. So the question is, 
why is Uzzah there functioning like a Levite when he's not a Levite? Somebody dropped the ball. They did not seek God as to who should be the ones with the ark. So the first mistake is he touched it. The second mistake is he shouldn't have been there to begin with. The third mistake is where the the ark was. Now, I looked at this in verse 3. I said they car- it reads, they carried the ark of God on what? A new cart. Now, if we read the law of Moses, God says that the ark should be carried by, with two poles. Those poles were to be attached to the ark and never removed. They carry this ark then, the Levites are supposed to, on these two poles on their shoulders and walk. First mistake, he touched it. Second mistake, he's, a, he's not a Levite. Third mistake, it's on a cart, not on poles. And fourth mistake, the cart is where? But on oxen, on animals, not on the shoulders of people. You see, God's word is really clear that when they were to transport the ark, they were to keep these things in order because that's the standard God set. So the question I begin to ask is, well, why then did they do it this way? Well, as I told you earlier, when the Philistines captured the ark and returned it, they returned it on a cart led by two cows. It seems that God's people simply mimicked what the people around them were doing. They simply did the very thing the world around them was doing, thinking it would be satisfying to God. Well, then you might ask, well, how are they supposed to know, though? Like, really, how are they supposed to know this? Well, the first thing is they're supposed to read God's law. God isn't silent. It's just whether or not we're going to choose to hear him. They just didn't listen. The second thing that they did was what they didn't do as well They simply didn't ask God. I told you in chapter 5, you can even look at this briefly there in verse, chapter 5, verse 19, it says, and David inquired of the Lord with his military tactics. You look at chapter 5, verse 23, and when David inquired of the Lord, and then in verse 25, and David did as the Lord commanded him. David knew what to do because he asked God what to do and then obeyed it. But for some reason at this moment, they just didn't ask God. And what I also find quite interesting is that there were 30,000 soldiers there with him. All the officials, all the religious leaders, and not one person that we know of spoke up saying, this is not the way to do it. What I see here is this reminder that sincerity doesn't give us a pass for doing something we know is wrong or doing something we're choosing to not find out what's right. Let me say it this way. Just because we're sincere doesn't give us a pass when we're knowingly wrong or willfully choosing to not know. You see, maybe they knew the truth and just chose not to do it, which is just straight disobedience. Or maybe they just didn't choose to find out, which is kind of willful ignorance. In either case, God knew what was up, and Uzzah touched the ark. Yes, that was wrong, but he shouldn't have been there to begin with. The oxen shouldn't have stumbled because it shouldn't have been on oxen. There shouldn't have been a cart because it should just be on poles. And we see this and we're like, this seems a little picky, God. Why why so particular? 
Well, our God is a God who is holy, and he wants to make sure that we don't come into his presence haphazardly. That we just don't show up thinking like, oh, God, you, 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 you know, you got to hear me anyway, don't you? Now, there's a fine line here, though. As I was reading this, I'm like, man, then that gives me fear. Like, what could I do, God? I'm always going to be afraid then to, to do something wrong, and I didn't know it was wrong. You, you, you hear me? And when I think about this, I'm reminded that God doesn't look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Now, the whole world is in a buzz right now over Kanye West, right? His album, Jesus is King, dropped uh, about a week and a half ago, where this man, who's undoubtedly the most famous rapper in the world, has had some radical, some of these Jay-Z fans are like, no, no, that's not true, right? Um, (laughs) He has this radical experience with God, conversion to the faith. And in his album, he talks about being raised in the church. And and it seems, at face value, that there's something real that God is doing there. Uh, Pastor Jeremy and I were listening to an interview, and and Kanye says something to the effect of, when he had this encounter with God, all he knew was that he wanted to, to gather people together to kind of start a church. And he said people told him, you can't start a church, you're not a pastor. He's like, and he said, I don't know all the right words to say. I just know I love God and want others to know. And I realized it's like, he doesn't have it all right. I mean, he says some things that you're like, that's, that's, a, that's a head scratcher. But his heart, it appears, is such that says, I just want people to know that I love God. And I might stumble along the way. And God's not in heaven been like, you know, that's the wrong, you said the wrong thing, bro. But God, God knows our hearts here. And I find that remarkable. In fact, he was on a late night show and they asked him, would you consider yourself a Christian rapper now? And he says, I'm, I'm a Christian everything. And I'm like, yeah, that's good, man, that's good. What we learn from Uzzah here. It's is not that we need to walk afraid that we're going to mess something up and God's going to strike us dead. Because there have been many of us all in this room who've messed things up out of sometimes our ignorance. Sometimes just we didn't know the right thing to do, but we, just, we love God and we mess things up along the way. God is still gracious. He is still merciful. He is still love. But I believe what God here is revealing is when we just say, uh, we, just, we just take an apathetic approach to being with him. That we choose to not care enough to find out what's right. That, I believe, is what God is pointing out here. See, when we bypass God's directions, we are in danger. And so if you are more veteran in your faith, don't let your experience produce apathy. Don't let your experience cause you to have a know-it-all arrogance, but still remain with a tender heart that says, God, I don't know a lot, but I know this much. I love you. I'm a Christian everything, even if I've been one for 25 years. Why did God do this? Well, I think he wanted to teach his people an important lesson. And we see this lesson played out in David's response. We see there in verse 8, his immediate response with God is what? It's actually, it's, it's anger. He's angry with God. It says, and David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. But then secondly, in verse, in verse 9, David then became afraid. 
to the extent in which he's like, I don't even want to bring this ark into Jerusalem. Let's keep it out because if you're going to strike down Uzzah, I don't know what you're going to do for us. So what does he do? Like a good friend, he takes it to his friend's house, right? Obed-Edom. <laughs> I read this story, I'm like, man, that's kind of wrong, right? Like, like you just killed them, so let me take it to your house and I'll bring it to my house, right? So what David does, he sends this to this guy named Obed-Edom's house. And what begins to happen is God blesses the house. And, and, and then he's like, okay, I see what you're doing, God. Now I'm going to bring it back to my house, right? <laughs> there was some space that was needed. It was there for three months in this man Obed-Edom's house. And I begin to see here, though, what God is teaching David during, these, during this time. He's teaching David to fear him. He's teaching David to recognize what went wrong. There is a parallel passage to this in 1 Chronicles 15. And in this passage, David begins to talk to the Levites and say, hey, we're going to need you guys when we bring this ark back. Because the first time we, we made a mistake. David learned to fear God. David learned that God is to be reverenced. The same lesson that you and I must know. Again, we can't emphasize God's grace, mercy, and love at the expense of the fact that he should be feared. The Bible, in fact, is full of examples of us fearing God. Take Moses, who said, God, show me your glory. And God's like, you know, you got to hide behind this rock. I'm going to pass by you. And you can basically just see the after aspects of my glory. Because if you look at me dead on, you will be dead on. Or Israel, when God shows up on the mountain, it says that they began to tremble because God was there. Or Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, and he says the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and exalted. He saw the angelic beings praising him, holy, holy, holy. And what is Isaiah's response? He says, woe is me. I'm an unclean person. He's there terrified in God's presence. Or take Joshua when he sees the commander of the Lord's army, which is most likely God showing himself in physical form. What does Joshua do? He falls on his face before this one. Or take the psalmist that says, when you look on the earth, it trembles. Like, God, you don't even have to talk. Just looking at the earth, you cause it to shake. Or when Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 16, that God dwells in unapproachable light. Family, we've got to understand that the Bible wants us and God wants us to fear him. When we feel God, fear God, we realize he is the self-existent one. We realize that he is the beginning and the end, the alpha and omega. When we fear God, we realize that he is holy. That means there is no imperfection in him. He is without blemish. God is spotless. God is glorious. He is majestic. God is transcendent. He is magnificent. He is radiant. He is wonderful. He is terrifying. He is fear-provoking, mountains smoking, reverence demanding, face planting, frightening. This is our God, church family. David needed to understand that. You need to understand that. 
as do I. For three months, this terrifying arc that first struck anger until David realized, man, I'm the one who was at fault here. And then it struck fear. And David's there looking at Obed-Edom's house like, man, look how God's blessing that place. You know, what does it mean for God to bless someone? Well, James 1.16 says, do not be deceived, my brothers, in verse 17. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Anything that's a good, truly good gift is from God's hand. And this man's household was experiencing some good gifts. We're not told exactly what it was, but among those things, we are told in 1 Chronicles that he had an eighth son. Sons in that day were of great importance because they carried on the legacy, the inheritance, they worked the fields, and so forth and so on. And I begin to wonder, is this eighth son the result of the ark? Like, did his wife get pregnant when the ark was there? Was she beyond age, perhaps? Whatever it was, it appeared to be such that the people of God says, God is clearly blessing Obed-Edom's household. And David's like, I want some of that. Bring the ark to my house. I said that God should be greatly feared, but also greatly desired. Do you see this tension here? David's like, let's keep the ark away, but let's bring the ark close. Let, let's, let's be afraid of God, but let's also long for God. Let's realize that I can't stand in his presence because of my sin, but also realize I need his presence because of my sin. Like David's like, God, I need you, but I'm scared of you. God, I want you, but I fear you. God, I reverence you, but you're beautiful. And so here David is saying, bring the ark here, but now, not with some confidence in himself, but with a true fear of God. God is like a magnet, family. I used to love, as a kid, taking two magnets and see how fast they come together, right? But then I would also love to flip one of them, and you try to put it together, and it feels like there's like this invisible ball between the two. You know what I'm talking about? And it's just a weird feeling when you see that you feel like something's rubbing, but there's nothing there. See, magnets have a magnetic field around them, and every magnet has a north and a south pole. And what's with magnets is that opposites attract. A north pole connects with a south pole, and that's when they come together. But when you reverse it and it's a south with south or north with north, it repels. When I think of God and his glory and the fear of the Lord, it really is magnetic, isn't it? Because on the one hand, we feel like it's repelling us. God, you're holy. What business have I to even talk to you? And yet, as with God, opposites do attract. Our perfect God attracts some really imperfect people, family. And we are drawn to him in a magnetic way. And we're like, I fear you, God, but I want you, God. And God is just pulling us to him. And that's what he's doing for David. And that's what he wants to do with you. Pull us to him. I love David's response here. It says David brings the ark, but look, he doesn't bring the ark in any way. In verse 12, it says, So David went up and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with what? 
rejoicing. It, it wasn't a somber occasion. It was a fearful and reverencing one, but it was also a celebratory one. And in verse 13, and when those who bore the ark, notice the change of language, is no longer oxen. Those who bore the ark, the Levites with the poles and the ark on their shoulder, when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and fattened animals. Now, why would he do that? Why would he say, all right, let's take six steps, let's stop, let's sacrifice some animals? Well, my understanding here is if David's kind of like, let's test this out. Last time, this didn't work out too well. Let's take six steps and see if God be pleased in us. They offer the sacrifice, and they seem to really get the green light. God's like, you're doing it right now. You fear me rightly now. And so then they make the estimated 10-mile trek from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David. And what did they do in verse 14 along the way? David danced before the Lord with all his might. Family, dancing is a spiritual thing. And this is one of those things we just can't let the world take and say, well, that's not, that's not to do with us. We've we got to dance for God, fam. We, we've got to dance as part of our celebration of his holiness and our need for him. David no doubt danced because here he is, this imperfect man walking with the ark of the covenant, God's presence, and he's like, God, you're letting us do this. They're rejoicing, they're dancing, and they're dancing, and they're dancing. And David, it says, was wearing a linen ephod. You're like, why do we need to know that? Like, why do we need to know his clothing? Well, the linen ephod was something that the priests wore. David, of course, was the king. He was not a Levite, but he took on this, this robe of a priest and kind of carried these, these twin duties of priest and king. And he wanted to lead God's people into worship of God. And wearing this outfit symbolized that. We're told in First Chronicles that he had this kingly robe, so maybe at some point he switched clothes. But it says in verse 15, So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. David was there dancing and celebrating. We see in, chap- in the rest of this chapter here, we don't have time to go through this, although this is fascinating. Verse 16, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. This is David's wife, uh, one of his wives. We'll talk about that in two weeks. Um, she sees David dancing. She accuses him of getting all unrobed in front of everybody. Some people think David danced naked. I don't think that's what it's saying here. What she's despising is David's celebrating. Now, undoubtedly, she probably was a little bitter seeing that her dad was supposed to be king and her brother replacing him, those kind of things. But what we see here is that David is just worshiping with all his might, and those who don't have a palate for the worship of God see it and despise it. But those who love the Lord joined in it, family. And they worshiped there. David danced with all his might. You see, the fear of God is not meant to douse our worship, but to fan it. God doesn't say, fear me in such a way that you never come near me. But fear me in such a way that you come. You keep coming to me. God should be greatly feared, 
and greatly desired. Now, some of you might feel stuck today in your faith journey. Maybe you are a Christian, you are a child of God, and you feel stuck. I want you to begin here. God, am I fearing you? God, am I really fearing you? Others of us maybe have never put our faith in Jesus to begin with. And it starts here. God, you're perfect. I'm not. I need you. Would you forgive me? I believe Jesus died for me and rose for me. Forgive me. This is how it is to fear God. In the book, The Chronicles of Narnia, there is this classic quote that this young girl, Lucy, in a conversation she has with Mr. Beaver, the Chronicles of Narnia, they go into this land in the wardrobe, and Lucy and her brother Peter and her other sister Susan meet a beaver, a talking beaver. And a beaver talks about a, someone named Aslan. And she asks Beaver, is Aslan a man? And beaver says, Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Then the other sister Susan says, Oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall, feel, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mr. Beaver says, Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Our God isn't safe, family, but he is good. We don't come haphazardly, but we do come because he's good. And the beautiful thing about our God is that here Uzzah was not met with mercy, though he stopped the mercy seat from falling, but our God became a man so that at the cross of Jesus Christ, he was our priest and king, but not just like David, but the perfect priest, the perfect king. And at the cross, his mercy was on display so we can come to this dangerous God but this good God because his wrath is not directed toward us through Jesus. It's not poured out on you because it was already poured out on Jesus when you put your faith in him. Jesus is our priest and our king. Yes, he disrobed himself of sorts, of his own perfection and robing us with it. And we unrobed our sin and put it on his shoulders on the cross. Our God is a God who is to be feared, but because of Jesus, he's made a way to know him. He isn't safe, but he is good. Family, as we think about our lives, I want you to think where you are at in this barometer of fearing God. And I want you to know that God is to be rightly feared, but also, also rightly longed for. And that we would come to him saying, God, empty-handed, fallen, broken, but Lord, I come humbly. The way that David and the rest came the second time. And when we do so, there is reason to rejoice in God. There is reason to dance for God. There is reason to sing for God. Ultimately, it's only him that can cleanse us, but he invites you to be cleansed. Boy, he is so good to us. That's what we call the magnetic fear of the Lord.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we give you our hand clap. God, we give you our worship. We give you our praise. And I thank you, Lord, that opposites attract. Thank you for pulling us to you. God, for that person who is here, Lord, as we see, say each week, we believe this, the person feels far from you because they've never put their trust in Jesus. May they do so this morning, Lord. Transfer them from death to life. Make them a new creation today. And Father, for your child, that son or daughter of yours who you call by their name, that you love and know, but maybe they've drifted God, they've begun to be more haphazard about their coming to you. They take for granted your grace. Lord, would you stop us in our tracks? God, give us a sense of trembling in your presence, but let us come to your presence. Lord, I pray that you would just tear down all the different things in our lives that have distracted us from you and prevented us from coming to you the way you deserve. Cleanse us, clean our hands, clean our hearts, clean our eyes, clean our thoughts, clean our feet. God, clean us, we pray. And you can do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Family, would we stand together? Prayer team, would you please come forward? Our prayer team is available for you. We'd love to pray with you. Let this song be a prayer, guys. Let's, let's, let's pray this and sing this from the bottom of our heart in worship. God, for the things you're doing in our hearts right now, Lord, I pray that you would solidify them in each of us, Lord, that we wouldn't see, God, uh, you at work and call it a moment, God, but that we would say, God, let this be something you're really doing in me. God, I pray for each man and woman, every youth here. Lord, I pray that they would not just uh, ignore you, but Lord, that we would go out today saying, God, what you started here today through singing, through worship, through your word, through fellowship, God, would you continue that work in my life? God, I pray you protect these brothers and sisters, Lord. Protect them from the evil one. Protect them from their own sinful desires, their own flesh. Protect them from the world. God, I pray that they would say, Lord, have your way with me. Cleanse me. Clean my hands. God, clean me. So, Lord, I pray we'd walk in victory. Bless them, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. God says in Isaiah 41.10, he says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, and I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That is God's promise to you, his son, you, his daughter. And go out with that promise and hold tight to him. That there's no need to fear when he's got you in his hands. You are dismissed. God bless you. We'll see you downstairs for refreshments. Please come on down.